Welcome to the Winged Hazar Pubcast. From fantasy to sci-fi to history and horror, your hosts are about to take you on a journey through all things Winged Hazar Publishing. Sit back and relax as we talk about writing, gaming, as well as interview some of your favorite authors. Let's wing it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Winged Husser Pubcast. I'm Brandon. I'm Mark. I'm Ben. And in today's episode, we're going to be doing our first author interview. And our guest today is none other than Ben Stoddard, who we've talked about a few times on the show already. And we're going to be talking about his latest Kings of War novel, Pride of a King. All right, so Ben, you've been working with us for a few years now. Um, your novel, your first novel, Drowned Secrets, was actually the second Kings of War novel that we produced. So how do you feel, you know, working in with us and in the setting and everything? Uh, yeah, honestly, I enjoy it. Um, I've, I've been having nothing but good experiences with Wing Tassar. It's been a lot of fun. Um, honestly, Drowned Secrets was my first novel that I ever actually had published. So that's been a, it's been great that that's been such a positive experience for me. Um, I've been an enthusiast and a and a closet writer my whole life. I've got lots of half-finished and fully formed novels that will probably never see the light of day because, you know, they haven't gone through the process and the rigor that Drowned Secrets and Pride of a King have gone through. But yeah, it's been great. Um, I've also talked with Mark and he has nothing but good things to say about Wing Dasar. And I'm glad that my first experience is with such a, such a good, great company of them so i've got nothing but good things to say we appreciate it and mark you know you're no stranger to working with ben you guys have been swapping ideas for a few years now and uh you know the three of us worked on nature's night yeah um i think for me what one of the most interesting parts of it for uh it was just myself and ben really was right in the early days that the two of us ended up doing these two opening novels um Kings of War did have fiction out beforehand, but not in as formalized a way, I guess you could say. So we're kind of, both of us were simultaneously trailblazing a little bit. And it's quite difficult when you sit down, open Microsoft Word and stare at a blank page and think, well, geez, uh, I've got to start world building. So, so it, was really, it was really useful, I think, um, certainly for me, to have Ben to bounce ideas off and to send paragraphs to and say, does this tie in with what you're doing and that sort of thing. I was going to say, I don't know if you found that a similar sort of thing. Yeah, no, I've, I agree because especially since, like I said, this was my first time working with a publisher and having an editor and all that kind of stuff and actually a, a known built-in audience for what I was writing – it was really helpful to be like, well, what do you think about this? And it was really funny some of the things that Mark would come back and say because I there were things I hadn't considered. Um, like in Drowned Secrets, there's a there's a scene where there's a family that has you know an undead mother and a and a child in it, and um, Mark wrote back and said, "Ooh, that'll be interesting to see how people react to that." I still remember this uh, quite vividly, being like, "I've had some uh, interesting." Um, fallback from from similar situations or seen that with other authors too and so it'll be interesting to see how that's going i hope you're ready for that um and 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 he was right because drowned secrets had a, a much darker tone and a lot of people that uh didn't resonate well with and so it was kind of interesting to see how um that how mark's experience was able to kind of influence and kind of prep me for for that kind of thing so it was good to have somebody that i could that we could talk about our different ideas. Um, I'd help him with the lore um, as I'm 
more of the Kings of War player and he would help me with like, how's this going to be received? Remember who your demographic is, all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was good. It's a nice little collection of authors that we have. And, you know, I've, I've talked about this on a few of the other episodes, but it's, we have a collection of good people who it's nice to fall back on and say like, Hey, can I get your advice on this? Can I get, you know, can I get your opinion on this? Like, how do you think this feels in relation to what I'm doing? And it's good that we have that go back system, fallback system, because I don't, necessarily think a lot of other publishing companies do because a lot of other publishing companies don't work within a medium like we work in a wargaming setting so you have not only other authors but you have the community to fall back on as well which is really cool to see so how this is going to work since this is our first uh interview episode i'll just go over it for everybody at home to understand and just so that ben understands we're going to have two big halves of the show the first half is going to be non-spoiler. So we're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about, you know, the setting. We're going to talk about, you know, Ben's experience in working on the book. And then after that, we'll put a big disclaimer about when we're getting into spoiler territory. So as I talked about in our early or our first episode, you can either listen to it, listen to the spoilers, see if it maybe intrigues you to buy the novel, or you can come back after you've read the novel and see how the insider details fit into what you've read. And at the the very end of the show, we'll have some just quick-fire questions for Ben, just to, you know, get to know him a little bit more, and just to end the show on a nice little positive light note. And Mark, if you want to take us away, feel free. Righto. Okay. So, framing the whole thing, kind of big picture stuff, first off there. When we get into these, uh, into any of the franchises of Wing to Saw, there's a publishing schedule, there's working with the parent company, and, and there's quite a lot of admin, I suppose, for want of a better word, to go through first. So, for this novel, how did the original idea come together, and how did you go from, I'm going to be writing um, this novel with these characters, uh, effectively borrowing, taking on loan characters that someone else has already come up with, and and adding life to them? Yeah, so, the original idea for for it was brought up, I think it was 2020, because I think Drowned Secrets had just come out, and Mantic wanted to do, and I can't remember if this was at Mantic or Wing Tassar's urging, but they wanted to do a big phone call with all the authors that were going to be involved with with the upcoming novels uh, to kind of get an idea of where things were going to go. And so we got on this giant uh, roundhouse phone call, or round, round table, not roundhouse, different, different thing, uh, round table phone call, and um, just... Mantic threw out all these ideas of things they were looking at. Brandon had also been talking to me about, well, these are some of the things that Mantic kind of wants. Um, what are your art? Do any of these sound interesting to you? And the idea was floated around that they wanted um, kind of like a, a whodunit or spy thriller kind of, of setting for one of their books. I'm like, oh, that could be interesting. Um, and then Brandon was mentioned that they really wanted someone to do a dwarf lore heavy book. And I know the, the population loves uh, of gamers that play Kings of war. There's a very dedicated fan base specifically for the dwarves. I was like, that's got a good audience built into it. I, I'd be interested in doing that. And my original army that I, cause I've been war gaming for well over two decades now, and my first army that I ever bought way back in Warhammer, like, 5th edition, I want to say, was Dwarves. And so I had, I, I've got a long storied history uh, behind that, and I've I've played Dwarves for a long time. And so I was like, you know what, that, that kind of hits home for me. 
which is interesting because I I don't own and I don't play a Nyad army, which is why Drown Secrets being about a Nyad was kind of interesting for me because it required me to learn some things that I didn't know too much about. Um, <laughs> but dwarves definitely um, are are have a have a special place in my memory. So I said I'd jump on that, and then the idea of well, they said they wanted this kind of thriller idea, and. I looked at the character of Golok and I was like, wow, he kind of fits that. I think it might be interesting to see how how this could fit with a in a dwarf setting. And so I pitched that idea to him and Brandon liked it and he sent it on to Mantic and they were like, sure, that sounds great. Let's do it. And so that's kind of how I got on board with this project. And that was, like I said, that was back in 2020 when I first got the kind of the green light to start planning this project i want to throw something out there when we first talked about this idea i'm a huge as we've talked about on the show i'm a huge video gamer so rpgs are my passion and when we first started talking about this idea i always thought the most quintessential depiction of dwarves was fantastically done in dragon age origins so i remember saying to ben i'm like i can totally see like use Dragon Age Origins as like an inspiration for some of the details and like the story because there is a similar plot in Dragon Age Origins of like a um, a mystery and like a siding of two political factions and so with the Imperial and the Free Dwarves being the main force in the novel I'm like oh this this has some makings to really like seed in some details from there. Oh, as, yeah. so, as soon as you said video games, I knew I knew you were going Ogren. And um, I know we've yes. been here before because I love Dragon Age Origins as well. But uh, and I know this will, given the audience that we've got, because it's about dwarves and you know who have this fanatic. I'm already tis tis tisking. Yeah, yeah. That you know, Ogren is the only one I consistently kill in that game. But um, that's fine. That's fine. We can move past that. That might get edited out. Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> to save face, it might. But you know what? For the greater good of you know, it's your prerogative. We'll leave it in. We don't subscribe to censorship here. Well, um, it moves nicely into, because I've got um, a, a kind of couple of follow-up questions, because on that, the fact that uh, within fantasy gaming, be it video games, be it war games, factions have got the fanatical followings, definitely, and dwarves absolutely fit into that mold. Um, my son has been into um, war gaming and video games, actually, for a couple of years now, and I was speaking to him about this and said, what would you want to ask Ben, given the... the, uh, the the stuff he's been working on. So I've got two questions for you from him, the first of which is relatively simple, and I'll read out verbatim. For a fan of the fantasy genre war, uh, of fantasy genre and wargaming who knows very little about dwarves, how would you describe them within the Kings of War setting specifically, and how are they different to other franchises? Yeah, this one's, this one's a very interesting question, and I like it, so pass my kudos onto your, onto your kid, because this is, this is a good one. <laughs> so um that was one of the biggest um criticisms that i've seen heaped on especially drown secrets but on all of the kings of war lore basically is that it's very generic and is heavily borrowed from other franchises and ips it's got obvious elements of tolkien which i don't think you can get away from in fantasy in high fantasy settings but also yeah but also um from games workshop warhammer and stuff like that how there wasn't much to differentiate a lot of those one thing that i did like about mantic and i remember this from the first days that i started playing kings of war 
uh, back at like the the first part of second edition was that the dwarves, the elves, and the men, instead of them being like this 10 minutes to midnight kind of edge of the apocalypse, waning race kind of thing, like they're this, instead of being this race that's on the edge of extinction at all times, the dwarves are actually kind of kind of in an okay spot especially the imperial dwarves they're one of the main strengths in the world of panathor um they aren't this this sickly race that's holding on by the you know by their nails to just survive and fight off annihilation they're actually thriving so that's one big difference and I like how the humans, elves, and dwarves, instead of it being like, oh, the dwarves are these superior craftsmen and they can't, you know, they're untouchable by anything else. And so all this kind of stuff and blah, 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 blah about how they're so much better than humans and humans are kind of just the, you know, blank slate or uh, persona non grata that can just you insert your own self into. Humans actually have their place in it as well. And they're on equal footing with the dwarves um, in their own way. Same with the elves. Um, yes, there's the old grudge between elves and dwarves, but it's not to the extent that Tolkien or Games Workshop goes goes to, and I find that very refreshing. On top of that, and going more specifically into the dwarves as I envision them, is that mantic dwarves aren't just caricatures of human emotions. That's a big one to me is because it always felt like in all the other ones that dwarves were the comic relief or they were these grumpy old men with long beards and and drinking problems. And that was that was the extent of what the dwarves were. Um, they, they were embodied by one, maybe two emotions. And I and I always disliked that because it kind of it made them seem just like cartoon characters they weren't real they weren't relatable they were something that like i picture the old 1990s D movie or 2000 early 2000s D movie with um and how awful it was that the character was you know they always the dwarf was literally there as the comic relief he was the one he was the one that they played their jokes off of and and that's how it's always been. Even Gimli in in Lord of the Rings, look at how he's portrayed. I mean, he has a lot of really serious scenes, but the the thing that you always remember when you think of as Gimli is either one of two lines, either that only counts as one, or never toss a dwarf, or you're gonna have to toss me. Those are those are his two claims to fame. And and while I love Gimli and I love that um, depiction of him, and I love Tolkien's dwarves. They they're boiled down to that that simplistic view, and I and I've always hated that. That's that's why when I created the the novel that I have now, rather than making them just this grumpy single minded people, I I took in a lot of other aspects such as what would a society that's based on grudges and honor and long heavy emphasis on tradition what kind of toll would that take on its population especially in a world that is so war heavy so conflict laden um that there's probably a lot of soldiers with some significant ptsd that are helping to form the basis of those traditions um and people 
people struggle with that kind of stuff that relates to real world issues. Um, and I think that there's a lot of important conversations that can be had through that lens with the dwarves. And so I implemented that with my story. And so that's how I would say that Mantic Dwarves and the dwarves of this novel in particular are different from all of the others that you've, that you've seen. If I can just throw my two cents, um, I think the best personified of that whole aspect of what you were talking about in your novel is actually in a minor character. Um, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. You tell me. The character's name is spelled O-E-D-I. How do you, how do you say it? I, I believe it's almost like Odie, so it's like O-A-D. Odie. That's what I thought, too. So he... I, I feel like you really do a great job of personifying that, and we can talk about that more in our later half, but it pretty much to sum up everything that you just said, look no further than that character. There's a lot of PTSD, there's a lot of grudge and tradition, there's a lot of uh, spin on your, your typical dwarf stereotype, and it's, it's found pretty much in all of his character. He is kind of an anti-dwarf in every thought of the word so we'll we'll, get, we'll dig into that a little bit but i just want to piggyback off of that yeah, i think it's great the way you've you've done that well first and foremost because you've already answered my next question which makes my life easier um which, <laughs> which was going to be about that, that whole uh high fantasy dwarf trope thing of, uh, okay so you're trying to explain the race uh not not mantic specifically but the trope to someone who doesn't know fantasy, and it's like, well, what's a dwarf? Forget the physicality of it. It's, um, what are they culturally? If you were to say to someone, I'm, I'm bringing a, a friend you haven't met before to the pub tonight. Oh, what, what are they like? Well, they're short-tempered. They bear childish grudges for decades. They're aggressive and, and, uh, and violently xenophobic. They're all not very nice things. And uh, it's, not, it's going to be quite hard to make characters likeable if they're defined by that. So the very fact you're, you've made this conscious effort to step away from that, I think, is fantastic. And, and going off of that, that point is, like, there's, there's a lot... Well, there's a lot in Dwarves that lends itself to a subversion of tropes because there are so many tropes and so many built-in expectations as to what a dwarf is that it gives a lot of fertile ground for taking those ideas and utilizing them but then subverting them kind of because some of my favorite um some of the most classic examples of take any genre of film horror adventure fantasy any of those some of the most favorite versions of those stories are those subversions are those kind of analysis of the genre and taking that analysis and flipping it on its head and i think dwarves are really ripe for that because there is so much built into what you expect a dwarf to be you expect an angry little alcoholic um and and i feel like that there's so much more that can be done with that and looking at that and analyzing what kind of effect that kind of character has and how can that what would that really be like if some if a society was like that if everybody was like that would that actually function or would there have to be some some change that we just aren't taking into account because all we ever get is the billboard version of the dwarves instead of an actual deep dive into their culture right and i mean you bring up a really good point um it it's dwarves i find dwarves fascinating because they're different and the way they're usually project, uh, portrayed in fantasy, 
is something different than the norm. I, I, I'm not a huge elf person. I, you know, I'm actually just playing Baldur's Gate 3 recently, and most of the characters in that game are elves, um, and I've, I really like them, or they're half-elves at least, but dwarves are something different, and I've always been a fan of dwarves in some capacity, but they've kind of run the gamut on tropes, and it's hard to find a way, even if you're trying to subvert expectations, it's been done in one way or another. It's either dwarves are this way or this way. They're either drunken, angry little men, or they're going to go to the extreme and, oh, look, it's a sorcerer. Okay, well, that's different, but now you've, the, the trope you've seen so much is now, it's a dwarven sorcerer. I've seen that so many times in different medias that I'm like, all right, so that, that's the new, like, outlier of the dwarves is there's going to be a sorcerer somewhere. But, you know, it, it's interesting how you've kind of crafted them to be, to think in that wider vein of society and think like, well, there, there are traits in any person in real world comparison that's going to translate to them. But you still kept them original and having their own feel. So that's interesting to try to craft. And this is the first of our Mantic Dwarf novels. And it's a good feeling of how the dwarves should be. You know, they've got the grudges. But at the same time, you know, there are certain things about uh, drinking that still hold true. And, you know, that's another... We'll dive into a little bit more of that in a little late addition that you added to the novel later on in the spoiler section. Um but you've done a good job of, you know, making sure that they stand on their own. But at the same time, you're still reading it like they're fully thought out characters and not just caricatures. So kudos to you on that. Oh, thank you. I guess it's good as well that um, it isn't just uh, subverting expectation for the sake of it and going 100% that. Um, tropes, there's a reason tropes are popular. And actually, um, without picking on another author, who because I don't think it's ever fair when they're not there to defend themselves, but there is a very successful fantasy book which is about a uh, very popular fantasy race, and it flips things on its head so much that the race in question are completely and utterly 100% unrecognisable. It's only a word, really. And um, because it's stepped away from those tropes 100%. Um, so I like with this that it hasn't. As soon as we meet Bannock in, in the opening... Uh, we've got a guy who's mining and that's always kind of been that association with dwarves being of the earth and that sort of thing so um, there are still those familiar yeah the familiarity to hang your hat on and uh, and get stuck into it with which I liked definitely I agree yeah and we've talked about this before you and I mark but tropes are there for a reason you know people are so headstrong about yo it's such a trope and like you got to make something different it's like well Yes, you have to put your mark on something, but you have to be able to have the audience relate to some sort of familiarity. And Ben does a good job to kind of characterize, these are dwarves. There are certain aspects of Tolkien-esque fantasy dwarves that you're going to recognize and go, yes, these are dwarves. But then there are new aspects that he brings to the table of like, oh, well, this is how Mantix dwarves are different. So I, you've got to have, you've got to rely on the strengths of the genre. You know, otherwise, you know, just use a different word. Like, if you're going to call them dwarves, you're going to make characteristics that are recognizable across the fantasy spectrum. That's just how it is. Elves, same way. You know, humans. There's humans in every single... It doesn't matter what you're reading, whether it's fantasy, science fiction, whatever. Humans are the most popular race in any type of writing, and they're always going to have characteristics that are we call... That's what makes humans humans. So it's... Tropes are a thing, yes, but it's good to lean into it and then make your mark from there. I agree. I, I would just add you gotta add you gotta pay homage to the to the original, right? You gotta because that's what draws people in. That's what people come for. That's why so many 
players who are dwarves or people have such a soft spot for dwarves is because that's what they've grown up with that's what they expect that's what they know and they love and so there's there needs to be that grounded link to the warm fuzzies at the center of the fiction right so you've got to pay homage to that original right i think um we've we've got through some nice stable questions but unfortunately we've got my son's second question which i think in the the history of podcasting this is uh no it's not it's not the most uncomfortable one but it's a tricky one i think it would be trickier for a uh, for a mantic management person to answer than you because it's more on that but give it your best (laughs) shot i'll read it out uh again verbatim in a game where some factions have spears and bows and arrows, isn't it massively unbalanced and unfair that this faction have rifled firearms with high-powered rounds and telescopic sights? How is that balanced in-game, and how do you balance that as an author in the fiction? So there's a couple of different approaches that I, that I take to this. One, I mean, in a world where there are dragons and magic and, you know magical versions of an atomic bomb lying around and monsters that don't function according to the laws of physics that we understand it kind of throws things off kilter in that regards because yes the elves have bows and arrows but they also have some of the strongest magic yes there's humans who have that fall in the middle there they have some types of arquebuses and things along those lines depending on which faction you go with but they also have wizards um and the basalians while they don't have any black powder weapons that they take to the battlefield which is weird because their ships have cannons on them but hey who knows (laughs) they they also have literal angels descending from on high to fight alongside them um, and so the the world balance in that regard, it falls slightly in, under that, but also my other thought process is there's historical precedence for this. I mean, you look at Japan, um, you had emerging firearms coming out with them, but right alongside that was swords and bows and arrows as well. And so they did coexist for not a small amount of time side by side in certain civilizations now the difference there is that the firearms in in japan's history were more rudimentary and crude and hadn't developed to the level that you know the dwarves have firing at you know fully armored knights and whatnot but there is historical precedence that does show that that could exist and where there are literal things literal instead of just figurative or faith-based divine intervention there's literal divine intervention in in this in this world and there's literal magic and there's literal the gods are not a hands-off kind of thing or um more they're literally involved with it they are you can physically see them walking around the battlefields in some cases so in that regard, that's how I would that's how I explain it away in my thought process is that yes, the dwarves, because if you look at the dwarves, they're not supremely magically gifted. They do have their priests, which we'll get into a little bit later and is an important cornerstone stone of their culture, which I which is a big part of Pride of a King. But as far as magic goes, all of their spellcasters are priests, are religious 
leaders. And so they haven't developed in the ways of like having sorcerers and mages and such and that. Instead, they focused more on the technical aspects. And because of that, they have more technologically sound tactics and more engineering feats of engineering in their armies. Whereas other armies tend to go the other route and go the more mystical route because both have been proven effective in the world of Panathor. And they're on par because they've either developed one way or the other and it's not just a straightforward route like we have in our world where there is no magic where technology you either advance technologically or you get trodden under the feet of those who do in panathor there's a way to go one of two ways and one way requires more development than the uh, physically and one requires more development spiritually or magically or divinely or however the case may be and they seem to be on parallel paths just in different aspects well on a personal note thanks for that answer because i think you've just uh written my second armada novel for me because <laughs> i was in a lot of trouble because uh, in terms of in-game mechanics, Kings of Wars, God, you know, it's um, exactly that. If you were to just make a direct comparison to the real world and you've got classic, uh, almost kind of Greco-Roman spear phalanxes against rifled firearms. So it's not like um, the crossover in, in that medi- late medieval era of the introduction of black powder. It's actually comparing a, a thousand years of, uh, of technological development on one battlefield. But if you either go to Armada... Good gosh, it's even worse than that. It's it's so yeah. hard to write. It is so hard to write where you've got the kind of Empire of Dust stuff, which is ancient Egyptian and, and, and galleys and ore power and catapults. And then you've got American Civil War era ironclad with turrets. It's like, wow, how do you, how do you make this fair? Um, so mm-hmm. you've solved that problem for me. Thank you very much. <laughs> Absolutely. You're welcome. Um but I've, I've got um, a couple of follow-up questions here before handing it back to Brandon for a bit. Um, taking a step back again, big picture, overview sort of stuff. Um, having worked with you before, I think I, I've always felt we, we've kind of come at this from slightly different um, approaches in that um, I've seen you as a, a kind of specialist author with a real deep dive knowledge of Kings of War. Whereas I'm kind of roaming from franchise to franchise with a, in some cases, um, an uncomfortably superficial overview until I dive deeper into it. Um, so that you've kind of got this specialized, I know this franchise inside out, this is my franchise approach versus the, I dip into different franchises and jump from one to the next to the next and then double back and go back to one, etc. Um, is that fair, would you say, in terms of would you say that you, you are first and foremost a Kings of War specialist from a law point of view? And uh, those two approaches, what do you think the pros and cons are from your experience? Absolutely. I, I, would, I would agree with that. I think that um, my first focus is Kings of War. Um, that isn't to say that I, I, I don't play other games or don't research other games or don't know the lore of other franchises or other ips or anything along those lines but it certainly isn't to the level that i've had to develop uh with kings of war um because i've been involved with tons of stuff within the kings of war community um i've i i just got back a couple months ago uh in july it from masters where i went and played on the pacific northwest masters team 
I I've been on I go on various podcasts to talk about the story of of um, Kings of War in general, not just in regards to my novels, but into deep dives into the lore. I talk with people all over the place. Um, I open myself up to anybody who plays Kings of War or is interested in Kings of War to please reach out to me if you have lore questions. Um, there's a there's a guy I'm talking to that lives in Boise, which is about five hours away from me, um, who's coming out to a tournament that i host for kings of war next month and he's been talking to me about his army and asking lore questions about his dwarves because he wants to know well what about this idea for my backstory for my army would this fit within the lore and i say yeah that's a really cool idea or maybe try tweaking it this way and so i've got lots of experience in that regard and the same goes out to anybody that is interested in in kings of war they can always talk to me about it i'm always happy to talk about it um whereas and I think that gives me an edge as far as finding out how things fit within the lore and figuring out how to make certain literary elements fit within that world. Um, I'm also an English teacher. I have my master's degree in English um, with an emphasis in medieval literature, which helps. So I know writing as well. And so mixing those two has a lot of advantages. Now, Mark, you have a definite advantage with me because you have the perspective of various um, demographics. You've interacted with multiple different types of demographics of fan bases um, and have seen ups and downs. There's some there's some universal rules that apply from fandom to fandom that you're able to avoid certain minefields, I feel like, that uh, I am completely unaware of when I'm writing my stories because I think I'm just writing a good story and you're like, well, that might step on some people's toes. Or you're saying, you know what, if you did this, it might get a better reaction from your um, uh, from your fan base that you're trying to approach. Um, I think writing for multiple franchises is very admirable. In fact, that's something that I would be interested in doing in the future. Um, the problem is, is I can only write one novel at a time and that usually takes me a good amount of time. You are a much faster author too, um, a much faster writer than I am. And I think that's partially because of practice, but also because of an, an experience, but also because I think you have the skill set developed to be able to do enough of a dive into a lore to be able to write a story and get a cohesive story out that fits within the world's parameters and be able to get that out to the fan base um, on a speedier basis, I feel like. So I would say that's one of the two biggest comparisons is, yes, I have a lot of lore knowledge and such, um, but I feel like as far as professionalism goes, you have me beat out by a significant margin, and that allows you to expand in ways that I currently am unable to do or not as able to do as skillfully because of that. Oh, I think you're too kind on that. I've, I've I've read a whole load of my reviews online, and they yeah. they, uh, they 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 tell me a very different picture about my professionality. I want to just chime in real quick, um, and I want to say, Ben is honestly one of the most passionate people about Kings of War lore, and that's one of the reasons why I picked him as you know our first fan author to sign on with us. And I I really do feel like it the lore in general. Ben is the most passionate person you will meet about making you know trying to promote mantic and trying to promote that this is a different fantasy world and it's a good option for people to look into and enjoy fantasy and on the flip side of that i will also say mark is one of the most encouraging 
uh, authors as far as when you need a second opinion on anything. Mark is really, really strong about making sure he sees things that you might not see. And I can attest to that in my own writing. Um, Mark really helped me to see things that I didn't see when I was writing it because he looked at it from an outside perspective and a different, like a more, this is what other people might take away from it perspective. And that helped me immensely. So again, I can't say enough good about both you guys. You're both great. <laughs> also, Mark, I want to point out, I mean, you know, as well as I do, the, the, the comment section is the last place you should go with your own stuff, but it's also the place you want to go. Um, I, I, I'm right there with you. The, the comments, you can't please everybody having read all of your Kings of War novels and considering myself to be pretty well versed in the lore and such, I find them quite interesting. In fact, I've commented on them on your characters. I've seen how you've adapted the lore to fit your needs in the novels and make it work. I would say that you have nothing to worry about in the areas of professionalism, nor in getting the lore correctly. And also on top of that, as an added bonus, you have the humility of not thinking, well, I'm, I've written several novels. I have a leg up on, on all these other people. I don't need to ask or change anything, or I know enough to be able to get this done. You're always, you've asked me on several occasions, what do you think about this as far as the lore? And it has never been with reservation. It's never been a, well, let's think what this plebeian thinks. It's, it's, let's ask him this question because I really need to know and I'm willing to adapt as needed. So you, you do a great job of responding to your demographic that you're writing for, I think. And that's, that's a skill that I think your ability of changing from IP to IP has given you and one that I think reflects well on you as an author. Oh, you're both too kind. I need to. Um, I'm. I'm. I'm going to start welling up here, but you don't know. No, I'm. I'm being very fl- flippant. Sorry, but no, it, it is very much appreciated. And um, I think uh, it does raise some interesting points on that, which w- w- are going slightly on a tangent, and maybe we can double back to in a future episode. I think exactly as you said, the comments section is a bad place to be, but it's one of those things. I think when you do get feedback. Yeah, positive feedback's always nice. That's great. Uh, it encourages you, it keeps you going, and it lets you know as an author, do more of that. So that's great. The the, yeah. the negative, I think, can come in one or two ways. And there's constructive stuff where you go, okay, there's a theme, uh, there's a trend here where people are saying this bit isn't as good as it could be. And I think it's really important for an author to have the humility to say, right, there's a weaker area I can make better, and I'm going to try and fix that. But we're all human and I think you've also got to look at sometimes some of the feedback that comes back is it's not constructive it's just good old-fashioned trolling and flaming and there's nothing productive in it. yeah 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 and you've, you've got to be able to de-latch from that and say that, that there's nothing in there that's going to help me grow and do a better job that's just someone being really unpleasant and, and trying to walk away from it and that's 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 a skill set in itself maybe one for a future episode absolutely I I would add just a, just a quick note on that. Um, while writing this book, Pride of a King, I worked a lot with Mike Rossi, and some of the feedback that I would get from him, and this is and and some of the feedback I've gotten on Drowned Secrets, and this isn't uh, this isn't directed at Mike Rossi at all. In fact, it's a good thing that he was willing to do this. Is some of the feedback that I got about that about Pride of a King just absolutely pissed me off because I was like, it's right there, can't you see it? And the fact that somebody was willing to say, no, actually, this isn't coming across very well, or nah, this seems off, um, even though I had invested a lot of time in it, that 
that was some of the best feedback and led to some of the best changes. Uh, Brandon even had me rewrite several parts of the final act of Pride of a King because he's like, this isn't good. And I was like, you know what? He's right. It is. It falls flat. So let's let's redo the whole thing and see where we come to. And so great, you've got that um, the, the the team approach to it though, because I certainly look back at the first one of these I wrote going way back, which was a different franchise, which has kind of uh, died a bit now. But it's such a lonely mm. journey, you know. When when you're looking at what's the average turnaround on a novel, um, it, well, it varies hugely. But let's call it six to twelve months. Six to twelve months with something that is creative and is close to your heart, and you're pouring your heart and soul out. If you do it alone, that is a lonely six to twelve months. And yep. every single one of them, I think, comes out better if you've got that opportunity to bounce ideas off other people who are enthusiastic about it. Zoom, uh, zooming in again on this specific novel, uh, on Pride of the King, um, comparing it to Drowned Secrets, you mentioned that was your, your, your first one for Kings of War, and you've also mentioned tone on that, that Drowned Secrets was, without a shadow of a doubt, that was a dark story, which I, I think is great, because we do need this whole palette of tones. If we're all the same, it, it, it does get a bit samey-samey. So to have different things for different readers. Um, how did this novel, though, for you, um, the, the writing process and this morally grey stuff versus something a bit more classically altruistic and good, how is that different in the process of writing? Yeah, so I, I've said this before on other interviews and other times talking about it. I don't believe in such a thing as pure good or pure evil. Um, Drowned Secrets afforded me an opportunity to play with a faction that is really neutral like they they go on both sides they they play skip rope with with that line the rule book um, even states alignment neutral exactly and so because of that it was easy to make Ashal and magdalene my characters from drowned secrets to be very focused in because it was also it wasn't a society driven story it was a very personal level it was very much on the on the eye level of what this what's going on in this world rather than um a discussion of you know what is a society like it made a few commentaries on that but Ashal and Maglin were very focused on revenge that was their goal and because they are that neutral idea there wasn't a whole lot of thought as to how is this going to affect other people how is this going to they were literally cut off from their society so they weren't thinking about the bigger picture for the most part Magdalene kind of but Ashal definitely not whereas in in Pride of a King I'm looking at a race that technically is held up as the enemies of they're they're keeping the world in in some sort of balance they're fighting against the forces of evil and all that kind of stuff and they have and the characters are heroes on a national level so i went from these little known nobodies to these celebrities essentially um and the weight of their decisions becomes much more impactful on the world and as a result i really had to look at the society and the rules that they play by and how they are considered good but well you can you can infer from the rule book and the lore in the rule book that there's some shades of gray there and diving into those shades of gray really helped to make the make those interactions different but also 
their society is a big part of that. And so the values of those society impact the way that the characters think, the way that they act, the way that they um, behave and their, their intentions. And so, for example, and this is something I got for, for pride. I focused on tradition protection. And in some cases, redemption, uh, the dwarfs are a race that to me, they love to browbeat themselves. That's kind of how the, the lens that I went through going into this. They love to browbeat themselves or others for past wrongs. Taking a look at Garrick, heavy hand. From the lore, he's literally done more for the race of dwarves and for the, for the world at large than almost any other dwarf that's mentioned in the lore. And yet he's still referred to with the moniker of Oathbreaker. Um, because of the sins of his ancestor who stole a bunch of god boons um, that were from the Celestians and made off with them and lost them. And so he's gone about trying to reclaim them and in doing that has, has saved countless lives and defeated countless bad guys, but they still call him Oathbreaker. Uh, that's a reflection on the society, I feel like. Um, I figure that a dwarf that is trying to be a good person and wants to embody the virtues that he's been taught of, yes, you are responsible for all of your actions. And we do mean all. And not just your actions, but the the honor of your family the the and the sins of your ancestors. Those are all on you. What kind of toll is that going to take on somebody? And I figure that somebody who wants to embody that virtue, something that he's been taught since birth... Um, as to this is what a dwarf is, this is what a good person should be, um, that he would internalize that, that kind of guilt, and apply it to himself. And if you look at that, that's how I portray Bannock in the story, because his backstory is he is in self-imposed exile at the beginning of when he comes into being a, a, a hero of the dwarves, is that he's in self-imposed exile because of things that he's done. And he's internalized this idea of, I screwed up big time. I should not be a hero. I shouldn't be in this place. How did I get here? All I've done in my life is mess up. Another thing is self-sufficiency and not being a burden to others. That's another thing. You see that in Herneus. Prowess in battle and righteous fury at one's enemies. That's based on, that's you find that in Sveri. Ingenuity and inventiveness is another virtue, and that's shown through Yorna. We talked about him earlier, but grudge-bearing and long memory is associated with Oedi or Odi. So all of these virtues of dwarven society, I apply them differently to each character, and you see them, you see these virtues and these 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 embodiments of dwarven culture through different lenses of characters that have taken different aspects of dwarven culture and applied it to themselves in different ways but they're all inherently dwarven in nature um and then they we take those ideas and we warp them over the course of hundreds of years of a dwarf lifespan and we extrapolate well what is that going to do to somebody what happens when somebody gets disillusioned or when they find out that this virtue that they've been holding on to their whole lives is not what they thought it was how is that going to change them or jade them or are they going to renew their faith in that ideal so it's a fun mental exercise and it keeps these characters interesting to me and is different from Ashal and Magdalene because they were a little bit more focused and where Ashal is much younger than the dwarves hasn't had as much time to have those life experiences even though she's had traumatic experiences and she's very disillusioned with the things that she thought was right at a young age these dwarves have been around for much longer and they have a much more 
deeper sense of their cultural identity and as a result their lens through which they see the world and through which they interact is going to be much more focused in certain ways or at the very least much more nuanced in others that's fair that's a really interesting take on it all right well we've had some really good conversation here i think for our first interview Uh, you know there's a really good deep dive on the you know the process of writing the novel and what goes into it and the characters um so much so i think we're actually going to end this episode here and we are going to uh slide back in with my questions in the spoiler review in part two and if you're listening to this this might drop at the same day it might drop a week apart we'll see we'll see how we're, we're planning things out but definitely stay tuned uh to part two to do a little bit more of the deep dive background into the actual novel itself uh i've been brandon rossbond I've been Mark Barber, and I'm going to take this as a coffee break. I'm Ben Stoddard, and thanks for listening.